0: Well good morning everybody, it's great to be together and welcome to week number four, the final week of Not the Boss of Me, where we have been uncovering over the last month some stealthy bullies in our lives that are trying to manhandle us and manipulate us and influence us and boss us around a little bit. Sometimes we can see that and we are like, yeah, I I can see that in my life, but we don't know what to do about it. Other times, these bullies are so cunning, um, we don't quite notice it. And actually, it's, we've become very, very familiar with So we talked about things like anger. And often, here's what it looks like, you know, well, I'm just an angry person. Um, and, and that's just common for you. And you say things like, yeah, I just get to be angry. I'm just an angry person. Well, you're being, you're being bossed around if that's the way you're living your life. We looked at the subject matter of unforgiveness where I think so often many people would say, well, I can forgive people, but not that. Because that was that crossed the line. That was too much. That really affected me. That really hurt me and wounded me. So I'll forgive this stuff, but I won't forgive that. And then we know what happens. You just get toxic on the inside. You get bitter on the inside. And all of a sudden, your life is going down in a direction you didn't really want it to go. You're getting manipulated. And then we also looked at the concept of rejection. What do you do when rejection comes in your life as it does to all of us to some degree or another? And so what happens is you're like, well, I'm now going to be cautious. I'm now going to withdraw. I'm not going to actually have close relationships. I'm not going to love people. And all of a sudden you are being bossed around in ways that you never foresaw in your own life. The reason why we looked at that wonderful video is because today we're going to look at the final of these uh, big rocks, and that is the word passivity. Uh, Now, anger, bitterness, unforgiveness, uh, these things are obvious. We know what they mean. What, What does passivity mean? Well, much like our little video there, if you are a passive person, your motto in life is slow and easy. Now, there's nothing wrong with moving along slowly. We don't all have to run around at 100 miles an hour. But then there's another level of slow. And you all know this. You all know people. You're like, get your life in gear. Like, that's too slow. You're not not functioning. And we all, easy is nothing wrong with easy. But then there's that person who, in every avenue of life, is always looking for what is the path of least resistance for me. That's the path that I want to take. And that's a sense of what passivity means. And here's what it does. If you're a follower of Christ and passivity is a part of your life, it causes you to grow in Christ and mature in Christ at a snail's pace or not at all because you've actually moved into a place of stagnancy. The enemy loves passive people. People who, when life comes your way, you simply shrug your shoulders. Maybe just kind of roll your eyes at something. There's not much I can do about it. I'll get to that tomorrow. We all know the problem with that phrase is, we don't get to it tomorrow. Tomorrow we say the same thing, I'll deal with it another time. And the enemy would love for a sense of passivity to remain hidden in your life, and when it does, he's just having his way with you. He's bossing you around, and you may or may not actually even be aware of it. It is the opposite of initiation. It is the opposite of action. Passivity makes you resistant to anything new. Change, transformation, even what God would want to do in your life, you just tend to kind of push back from that. It's the neutral gear of life. And you're going nowhere, and you're kind of doing nothing. You're just going through the motions, and life is passing you by. And here's the thing: you don't really mind. You are at ease with life just kind of churning along. Now, it probably doesn't sound awful, right? It's not like you're going around kidnapping children and robbing banks and killing people. It's not like anger where you're flying off the handle of people. It's not too bad. I mean, I get it. There's a sense in which you kind of think, well, I can't change the world. I can't handle all of the world's problems. What's the big deal if I take it slow and easy? To truly awaken us to the danger of what we are talking about. Let me describe it like this. Passivity is a slow, slow cancer that will actually rob you of the life that you're supposed to live, particularly when it comes to the life in Christ Jesus. To who you are, like literally your identity is robbed from you. And particularly in terms of action, like what you're supposed to be about as a man or a woman, as a, perhaps a married person or a single person or in your career or, or how you serve God. These things just move into slower, slower paces or they're not happening at all. And so sense of direction and purpose in your life just kind of goes nowhere. Passivity is not from the Lord and it is actually a form of rebellion. It is the void The big black hole, right? We all saw the picture of that this week. There's a massive black hole in your life where there's supposed to be movement and action and faith and excitement and life. And today, God is going to call you out of passivity to be a man of action, to be a woman of action, dynamic in relationships, engaged in your walk with God, deliberate in how you want to care for people, or love people, or serve people, really it touches probably every area of the one and only life that God has given you. So I want to read five brief scriptures right here. It's going to give you a biblical description of what this looks like in a person's life. James chapter 4. Whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin. That is a passive person. I'm not going to do it. Proverbs 20, I love this word, sluggard. I've decided I'm going to use this much more often in my life. It's a, it's a lazy person, sluggard. Sluggards do not plow in season, so at harvest time they look but find nothing. What a fool. It actually says they look, so they didn't plant any seeds, and then they go out at harvest time and they're like, Where, where's my crops? What a foolish person. What a lazy person. Hebrews 6, we want each of you to show the same diligence to the very end so that what you hope for may be fully realized. We do not want you to become lazy, but to imitate those through faith and patience, inherit what has been promised. There's a possibility that you can miss out on something if you're not diligent. Acts 20, this is Paul speaking. You yourselves know that these hands of mine, he's talking about his own hands, have supplied my own needs. So he had a side gig apart from his ministry, so he could supply and pay his own bills. And it's even more than that, And the needs of my companions. So not only did he supply his own needs, but he was helping other people. In everything I did, I showed you this by the kind of hard work we must, uh, by this kind of hard work, we must help the weak. Remembering the words of the Lord Jesus himself, who said, it's more blessed to give than to receive. And last one, and this is my favorite one this morning, Proverbs 24. A little sleep, a little slumber, look at this for the posture, A little folding of the hands to rest. Oh, I'm tired. I think I need a nap. I think I need a little rest. And poverty will come on you like a thief and scarcity like an armed man. That's a violent thing. Now, there's an obvious way to look at that in terms of, and we all know people like this, and maybe you've you've been this man or woman where you don't get up in the morning, you don't go to work, and you get the ramifications of that. You're suspended. You're fired. You can't get another job. Your resume starts looking like a mess. And we all know, probably met people, or maybe you've experienced this yourself. You've made the mistake where you're like, man, I actually can't pay my bills. Like, I can't pay my electricity bill. I can't put food on the table because this is what you did. A little sleep, a little slumber, a little rest, a little folding of the arms. And this is the kind of poverty that probably is really obvious to everybody. But I think this scripture goes even far beyond that pragmatic, obvious picture. When a father or a husband folds his arms in the context of his family, what happens is you will reap relational poverty with those people that you actually love the most. When a student folds their arms in the context of their education, it's obvious what happens. Your grades start going down, and sometimes... Students are no longer allowed to go to class and they're kicked out of school. When we fold our arms when it comes to money, well then, there's no savings. There's no emergency fund. And then you're trying to purchase things with money that you don't have. And so now you're borrowing and now you're paying interest. And what happens in our lives? We realize that this just kind of creeps up on us and we don't want to look at it. We don't want to deal with it. And all of a sudden, you're stressed out up to your eyeballs because now you're in major debt having purchased things that you don't even know about anymore. That's, that's a poverty that will assault your life. It'll come on you like a thief. But you folded your arms when it, comes, when it comes to money. We fold our arms with our physical health. We gradually give ourselves permission to eat the kinds of foods that we know. I mean, we all know, right? That we shouldn't be eating these kinds of things. We become less physically active. And what happens? Here's the poverty that will assault your life. It will be sickness and weight and pain and depression. That becomes your poverty. Or when we're dabbling in sin, when we say yes to disobedience, and it's gossip, and it's porn, and jealousy, and unkindness, and a lack of love in our hearts, but here's here's the passive man, here's the passive woman, it doesn't bother you anymore. You're not actually appalled by that in your life. You've become quite numb to it, and your response is not active. There is no plan. Our response generally is more, kind of shrug your shoulders. We kind of do nothing about it. There are so many aspects and ways in which we can be bullied and bossed around in our lives, but we don't actually recognize it. We become so used to it. We have an endless capacity to justify our own actions, don't we? Our self-concept, our self-identity, our explanation for our words, thoughts, and actions Endless ability to justify these things. And right in the middle of that kind of rationalizing is a passive man and a passive woman. And you know what it requires? It requires something very specific. It requires in your life a truth teller. Do you have somebody in your life that would have the gutsy conversation with you to steer you in the right direction? They probably don't even want to have the conversation. But I think so many of us, we simply don't have that. And what we're doing is we're giving off a no permission. You don't get to talk to me about what I am very content to move in, ease and slow. Author by the name Orpberg, he recounts this biblical story so well. One year, he says, when the armies of Israel go off to fight, as they had every single year, fell in the Old Testament called King David. He's an incredible warrior. Guess what he does this year? He says, for the first time, I'm not going. I don't want to go. Nobody can make me go. I'm the king. You guys, off you go to war. I've decided that I'm going to stay. Let them go without me. There's something unusual going on with David. He's not an old man yet, but he's not the golden boy anymore when he first became king. They're not singing the songs they used to sing about David. They used to sing, man, David has slain his tens of thousands that's an old song. Nobody sings that anymore. The novelty of it all has worn off, and it was quite some time ago. Perhaps women aren't looking at him the way, st- the way they used to look at him. And he has now become very familiar with an incredible thing, to be king. He's used to it. He's been doing that for several years now. So maybe he started in with just a little dab of, you know, just little just for men over here in the temples. A little Rogaine for the receding hairline. He's like, i got to put a a little track around the palace. i got to get jogging because I've put on a few pounds here. Some of that's probably going on in his life right here. And you know what he wants? This is fascinating. He doesn't really know what he wants. I'm not really sure what I want. Maybe he wants to feel young again and alive. Maybe he's a little restless or a little lonely. Maybe he's a little bored. He's won tons of battles. He was an incredible warrior. He's an amazing leader. He has acquired money. He has acquired power. He's very respected. But today he's like, yeah, I've done all that. And he shrugs his shoulders at it. Who does David talk to? Who's going to be a truth teller to the king? And really, he doesn't have anybody to talk about what he's thinking, what ideas are going on in his head, what he's feeling, what he's experiencing in life. And then it happens, as his armies are gone, And he's sitting at home in his palace. He sees a stunning woman. And she is remarkably attractive. And it's interesting how the Bible writes about this. He treats her like an object. There's nothing in the story about what he said to her. Or her ideas, or her thoughts, or any kind of dialogue between them. There's nothing human about it. He just treats her like a thing. The Bible doesn't give us any sense of humanity to her. Maybe she'll solve my boredom. Perhaps she'll make me feel younger. And so here's what he does. And watch this verb, because he uses it a whole lot. He sends somebody. Off you go. I'm going to send you to do a job for me. I'm not rolling up my sleeves. You do it for me. He sends a servant. Go off and tell me about this woman. Find out about this beautiful woman. And the answer that he gets back is actually extremely unusual. Very often in the Old Testament, when it mentions a man, it will tell you about the genealogy and the family of that man. So you'll see tons of places in the Old Testament where it's like, and he was the son of, and he was the father of, and he gives you all these names. But so often in the Old Testament, when it came to a woman, culturally speaking, it was not done. And so when the servant comes back from the sending that he did to tell him about the woman, here's what it says, 2 Samuel. She is Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite. Now this is extremely unusual. David's servant is actually being very brave. What he's saying to David is, David, that's somebody's daughter. That's somebody's wife. If David was a man of action, if he was a man of initiation, if he was a man who was thinking well and developing himself and growing as a leader and growing proactively in God, he would have seen that for what it was. Basically, if he was a man doing what God is calling every man and every woman to do, that statement should have stopped him in his tracks. But he's not that man. He is a passive man. He is numb to these things. He is spiritually numb. He's actually, and this is a very painful place to get in our lives. I'm not interested in the truth. I don't want to know it. And so it doesn't do anything to him. He's like someone driving his car. The light goes yellow, and he doesn't hit the brakes. He hits the accelerator. I'm going through this. Here's the language. Look at this again. He sends for her. He sleeps with her. He sends her back home. Off you go. And then he gets the big bad news. She's pregnant. King David, she is pregnant. Shockingly, what he does next is unbelievable. He kills her husband. King David, he actually murders her husband. And he does it, of course, because he's a passive man without lifting a finger. He goes back into sending mode, never rolling up his own sleeves. He's making others do his bidding. He is covering himself. He is not straining himself. He's not sweating. He is snapping his fingers, and he's making his servants run off while he pulls the strings like the puppet master, and he barely breaks a sweat, and he never gets off his throne. Now, notice the language cropping up again and again. He sends for a person to find out about the woman. He sends for her to come to him so that he can sleep with her. He sends for the husband. Check this out. He brings the husband back from war, which he was supposed to go to, and he didn't, so that he can sleep with his wife because he knows that she's pregnant. But the husband has more honor than David does. He refuses to sleep with his wife because his comrade-in-arms are in the middle of of the battle, and he says, it would be wrong for me to do such a thing. He has more honor than David. David. So he sends for the husband, and then he sends orders to have the husband now be placed in front of the entire army so that he's most susceptible to danger, and his life is taken. Then he sends for Bathsheba, and he marries her, and she has this baby. Here's what passivity will do in your life. Look at the camouflage. Look at the cost. Look at the deception in this. Look at what the enemy has reduced this king to. I want you to detect, if you would, the cunning and the whispers and the influence. King David is not so kingly. He has become numb. He has lost his way. He is now being manipulated. He is being bossed about. And it's not even so much that he's got a problem with God or that he's kind of shaking his fist at the heavens or who do you think you are? It's none of that. That would at least be active for David. It's his sitting still. It's his unwillingness to flex his muscles and to assert himself as a man and as a king. So here's what it does. For at least nine months, here's what David is thinking. Watch the lies. I can get away with this. Nobody is going to catch me. I'm the king. He is hiding. We have a king who's hiding in front of everybody. A king should never have to do that. He's a hypocrite. He is still the king, and everybody's looking at him, and in front of everybody, he's pretending every day. He would go to the temple every day to worship and make sacrifices, and it's pretense. It's a parade, and he's like, I'm happy to do this in front of everybody. He is leading the country. He is leading people, and the whole time, he is carrying inside of him secret guilt and unconfessed and unrepentant murder and adultery. That's what he's doing. Every day, he's growing more and more comfortable with his deception. Every day, his heart gets harder. Every day, he's getting further away from God. And nobody can see what's really going on underneath the surface. And there's nobody to tell him the truth. I read a story about a fellow called Gary. He works in a zoo. It kind of paints a perfect picture of this. The zoo where Gary works has a 13-foot king cobra. This animal contains enough venom with one bite; it can kill an elephant. And then, to make things make uh, things even worse, and to make this snake look like the very embodiment of evil, this snake has been in a few scrapes and fights, and the snake has a scar going right over its eye, like this. Isn't that nice? On a thirteen-foot king cobra. So here's a problem with that. I don't know much about snakes, but I know they shed their skin every now and again. So when this huge snake sheds its skin, guess what happens to the eye? The skin won't come off the snake's eye. So there's a really nasty job that the zookeepers have to do. So this dangerous job, Gary and four other colleagues go into this pen, this cage, and they face this 13-foot king cobra, which stands up, flares up its head, and looks for its first victim to bite. So here's what they do. They throw a net over the snake, they grab it, and Gary's job was he had to get a massive wad of tissue paper and shove it into the mouth of the cobra, which immediately gets drenched with this yellow, disgusting venom. So what they're trying to do is drain the snake of all the poison that's inside of it. And then they jump on the snake, and they get a scalpel, and they remove the snake's skin off of its eye. The first time that Gary ever did this, they were finished, and he and four other colleagues are sweating, totally stressed out, and exhausted from pinning down the snake. And that's when his colleague decides to tell him the secret that most people don't know about snakes. This was new to me. He says, most people are bitten not when they try to get a hold of the snake. Guess when? It's when you try to actually let go of a snake. That's when you're even more susceptible. And I thought, this is the perfect Picture of passivity. We grab onto things that want to destroy our character and boss us around and lead us down a road in our lives that we never intended to go down. It's so much easier to grab than it is to let go of. And I think I'm just going to continue to hold on to this in my life because the effort and work that it would take to actually get free from this, I don't think it's worth it. In fact, I've become quite cozy grabbing a hold of this. Deceit, bitterness, pornography, greed, financial debt, jealousy. These are the sins of the serpent that you will not let go of. It's easier just keeping a hold of them. That is the essence of passivity. I'm going to do nothing. Passivity may be a key form of sin in our day. For Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden, Passivity meant letting this snake tell them what to do. They were actually abdicating. Abdicating what? Abdicating the role, the identity, and the purpose, the design that God had given to them, which was what? I'm calling you to take dominion over the earth. Every animal, everything that flies, everything in the water, everything that's on two legs or four legs, take dominion over it. And yet they would not do that. Now this snake is telling them what to do. Decision-making is a part of what it means to be a human being. It's something that God has given you. To be a leader in your own life. The capacity to make a decision. It is a part of your humanness. Sin is not only an attempt to be God. It is also the refusal to be human. To be who God made you to be. And here's how you do it. You shuffle off The responsibilities that are a part of your life. You shuffle away the decisions that you're supposed to make in your life. You just say, I'm not making any decision about any of it. How about this? How about we don't let any snake tell us what to do with our lives? The most common defense in Nazi war criminals was this. We were merely following orders. And yet, the court held every one of them responsible. The Bible takes the sin of passivity very seriously. Why? Because it takes your humanity seriously. This is how God made you. To say that somebody is not responsible for their actions is actually to demean them as a human being. As a man or a woman, you belittle them when you, re- when you refuse to hold them accountable for their decisions. When we do that to ourselves, when we let ourselves off the hook and we say, I'm not making a decision about that, I refuse to take responsibility for what is rightfully mine. It is a part of the glory of being human to think and to act and to speak and to move and to lead and to love and to breathe. That's the way God made us. And so now when you acknowledge your mistakes, when you acknowledge your sin, when you acknowledge and you take responsibility for your actions, that is when we begin to move towards repentance and forgiveness and the joy of salvation. That is when you begin to rediscover your actual humanity, and that's when you start to become healthy. What is unhealthy is doing nothing, is wallowing in doing nothing, is inactivity, a deficit of wisdom and intellect. It's the attitude of, it's not my fault, wallowing in the guilt which never leads us to repentance, never leads us to forgiveness or faith in Jesus Christ. And it is fatal stuff to think, I can handle this snake all by myself. That's fatal. It's been going on since the Garden of Eden. Look at the passivity in Eve. Look at what she didn't do. She never had a conversation with Adam about this temptation. She never talked to her father God. She never once had a conversation She did not discuss it with God. She kept it to herself. She blames the snake. Adam is just as passive. He never talks to Eve about the temptation. He never talks to the father. And then he blames the woman. And then he blames God. He's like, you gave me this woman and she gave me this fruit. Passivity. We keep the snake a secret. Why? Because we want to continue to have the option of grabbing it without anybody knowing that is what David does. He thinks, I can handle this. I can handle this by myself. Until one day, it's God himself who goes into sending mode. And watch what he does. Along comes a very brave soul. A man who takes his life in his hands with what he is about to do to King David. His name is Nathan. David is already a man who is killed to cover up his guilt and his sin. But Nathan is a truth-teller. Nathan is a prophet. And Nathan is angry with David. And he should be angry with David. But Nathan loves David. So Nathan incredibly, skillfully, artfully comes up to David and he says, David, I have to tell you this story. And he, he spins him this tale about a man who was impoverished and had nothing in life, but he had one prized possession. It was this animal. He had this one sheep and that was how he would literally cope and pay his bills and function in life. It was this one little sheep and he just loved the sheep. And then he tells a story about this rich man who just had, you know, all kinds of cattle and sheep and animals and wealth and all kinds of stuff. And the rich man comes up to this impoverished man and he abuses him and takes advantage of him and takes his prized possession. And David's listening to this story, and he gets caught up in the details and and the emotion of the whole thing. And Nathan looks at him and he says, Well, what do you think of the story? And King David rises up with all of the authority as a king. And he's he's enraged, he's indignant, and he says, That man should be killed for taking advantage of this other man. Who does he think he is? He has no right to do it. And here comes the moment. And guys, watch that truth right there. Because every one of us in this place today, we can be exactly like that. We get fired up about other people's mistakes, other people's sins, and yet we fail to see what's going on in here. We've done that, haven't we? It's incredible what we're able to balance this indignation at other people's issues and their problems and their flaws and their mistakes and their guilt and we love to point that out but at the same time a numbness to our own inability and our own deficit to love here comes the big moment and Nathan risks it all I mean he's talking to the most powerful man in the world he could be put to death for just saying this to him and David's already done this to Uriah that's Sheba's husband he looks at him he says David that story it's your story it's you you are that god you're that man it's your sin that those are the depths to which you have fallen silence and who knows how long nathan waited with his life hanging in the balance but then there's this voice whispering in david's ear reminding of him reminding him when he used to be an innocent shepherd boy Reminding him when he used to be a man of action. Reminding him of the exhilaration of fighting for God and singing to God and writing music for God and leading a nation for God. And then it happens. It's an outright miracle. His heart melts. And this is what he says. I have sinned against the Lord. I'm that man. Who amongst us in this room today have been bullied and bossed around by passivity? Would you allow God to melt your heart? Would you allow God to change you? That you would not remain stone cold. David was actually known as the man after God's own heart. He didn't set out to become an adulterer. He didn't get up in the morning and say, well, I'm going to murder somebody today. Nobody, nobody sets out to try to make a mess of their life. And yet we know it happens all the time. Nobody goes down the aisle and speaks their marriage vows thinking, well, I'm just going to end up in court getting divorced. Nobody wants that. No dad welcomes his children into the world and then plans on being so busy with meetings and briefcases that he becomes some kind of polite stranger to his children. No disappointed homemaker, picks up a glass of wine to take the edge off the boredom, planning on secretly entering into the life of an alcoholic. No out-of-shape person starts an exercise program thinking to themselves, well, I think I'm just going to go binge eating right now to the place of physical sickness and collapse. No business person makes their first deal on becoming and then becomes so consumed and preoccupied with expanding their lifestyle and luxury and money and possessions that every sense of generosity and compassion just gets shriveled up inside of them. Nobody wants to go there. Nobody graduates from school and decides to become so preoccupied and busy and pressured and self-absorbed that they end up without a single friend. And yet these things happen every day to people. Why? Because you are isolated and you are alone. Because you have nobody in your life to be a truth teller to you. Because you've grabbed a hold of the snake and you've hidden it. And now you don't know how to let go. And now you couldn't be bothered letting go. Because there's an enemy and he is bossing you around. And he's whispering in your ear. Keep going in neutral gear. Keep going. we taking it easy. And things will work out. And deal with it tomorrow. And it's not my responsibility. It's somebody else's job. Somehow you've said yes to that. Somehow you have agreed with a lie. Because this is not how God made you. It's not how you were designed. It's not the designs and the purposes that he has for your life. Somehow you have resigned yourself to cautious living and measured living. You've closed up and it has become inactive faith. And slowly you have agreed to the path of least resistance and you've lost your zeal and your energy and your enthusiasm and your work ethic and your desire to take a hold of what God has done. And look, here's the other conniving part of this. So many of you today, you think, man, this is not me. No way this is not me. I get up every morning and I go to work and I roll up my sleeves. Or some of you are thinking, you know what? I've read the Bible and I've gone to Bible studies and you know what you're describing? You're describing something you did a decade ago. A man or a woman of action is not a man or a woman of action from last year or five years ago or 20 years ago. We're talking about now. And we think, we convince ourselves, no, I am, I'm an active guy. No, you used to be one. You think to yourself, man, I work hard at work and some of you do, you get in there, but you're passive in every other way of your life. You're passive as a wife, you're passive as a husband, or as a parent, or as a neighbor, or as a friend, or as a servant of God. It's shrugging your shoulders. Let me say this to you one more time. Passivity is not from the Lord. It is a form of rebellion. This is your one and only life. You will never get this day back again. And we have a God who is loving enough and caring enough to point out the bully of passivity in the Word of God. So today is your wake-up call. This pulpit, the preaching of God's word to your heart is your Nathan. Please hear the call to move and to wake up and to get in gear and to increase your faith and to seek your God and to love your wife and to love your husband and to invest in your children and to speak up and to sing up and to wake up and to show up and to repent of shrugged shoulders and a stagnant faith. Others of you here today, you are lost in hidden sin. You've grabbed a hold of this snake and you are hiding it and you don't want anyone to know about that. And you have paralyzed yourself to sleep. And finally, there are some of you here today and God is calling you to be a Nathan. And you already instantly know, I know who I need to talk to because I care about them and I know them. And I can see the neutral gear in their life. They used to be different, but not today. And God is calling you to have a very gutsy, risky conversation. And you might even lose the relationship. But to not go there, once again, is to be what? Is to be passive. And truth tellers are needed in the family of God. Church, what do we do when we sin? I promise you, not a trick question. What do we do when we sin? Yes, we repent. It's not a bad thing. It's a great thing. It's how we access forgiveness. It's how we access the embrace of our Father. and This is how we've described it in all four of these weeks. In fact, this is how we finished in every one of these weeks. that we've looked at anger and unforgiveness, as we've looked at um, um, passivity, and we simply broke it down as this. To repent, to say, God, I, this is my sin. Forgive me. To receive, that is to say, God, I, I'm going to say yes to what you did on the cross. I'm not going to wallow in guilt. You've forgiven me to rebuke, to take authority over these bullies who want to boss you around and make you filled with anger and bitterness and unforgiveness and passivity. And then we replace the lies and we replace them with truth. So could I ask you, let's stand together and we're going to pray and we're going to repent. Father, thank you for your presence. Thank you for the truth-telling that we find in the word of God. And so, Lord, we do. We come before you with repentance, glad, so glad that we can access you like this. God, I ask you for forgiveness for patterns of passivity in my life. Beginning to see, God, how that has affected me and even those around me. And I call it for what it is. It is sin. It's not from you. So, God, in this moment, I repent of every way that passivity has been in my life And I commit with your help to breaking those patterns right now. Jesus, I receive your forgiveness for walking in passivity. With a great big smile on my face, God, I accept your offer to clean me up and wash me and take away my sins. And I believe that I am forgiven. What you did on the cross was enough for me. And I no longer resist you or hide from you. Instead, I freely accept you're healing. We take authority in the name of Jesus. We rebuke the enemy for attacking us and deceiving us with lies about our true nature and our true calling, causing us to be passive in so many areas of our lives. I come against you with the authority that we have in the name of Jesus Christ. I command you right now to go away from us, to flee from us. You are a liar and we'll no longer listen to you or your deceptions about us. I place you under my feet according to the word of God. And God, I replace passivity with the truth of who God said I am, what he's created me to do. I say yes to growing and changing and transforming, partnering with the Holy Spirit to go and to do whatever it is that you've called me to. We pray this in Jesus' name and all God's people said, amen.